Welcome to the ASCD Connect podcast, supporting you on your journey as a life-changing educator. Here's your host for today's program. Hi, everyone. I'm Tara Laskowski, a senior editor for Educational Leadership Magazine at ASCD. If you've ever had an elementary age child ask you dozens of questions about the same topic, or overheard your son or daughter repeat something you told them, but not in quite the same way you meant it, then you know that young children process their learning and the world through questions and conversations. Our youngest learners are intensely curious and eager to soak up new knowledge. An educator, Jennifer Orr, believes these conversations and discussions are the gateway to critical thinking. A veteran elementary school teacher, Jennifer is the author of the ASCD book, Demystifying Discussion, and the recent EL article, Having Big Conversations with Little Learners. I am excited to have a conversation with her today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. So today we're talking about this intersection between conversations and critical thinking in young people. Why are they, as you call them in your article, a power duo? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, I think we see kids process their thinking through talk all the time. And honestly, I think if we slow ourselves down as adults enough to notice it, we do the same thing. We kind of talk our way to a deeper understanding of ideas. And for kids who have less experience with the world, less time here to have had experiences, those conversations with others, whether they're conversations with their peers or conversations with the adults around them, are that much more critical because they're gaining that much more kind of context and understanding from the people that they're talking to. So that idea that they get to talk through their understanding while also adding some new understanding from the people around them. And then really, if we help them thinking through that understanding and questioning if it's making sense to them and building those critical thinking skills in addition to just kind of building their knowledge base. Mm -hmm. So, Why is it so important for these young students to develop critical thinking skills at all? Honestly, when we consider the things that we need in life, critical thinking seems more and more important the older I get. And the more that I realize as the world continues to become more connected, as we all have more and more information thrown at us, being able to be critical consumers and to think critically about the things we hear, the things we see, is going to be even more important for our elementary age kids as they grow, even more than it was for us. And it's pretty crucial for us. So they are going to have so much information because we can share so much information so easily. They're really going to have to be able to question themselves and think through, does this fit with what I understand about this? Do I need to learn more about this? Do I need to ask a few more questions? Do I need to find an expert to not only understand when something doesn't make sense, but then how to make it make sense and how to use other people as meaningful resources and reliable resources is going to be really important. So it sounds like it's not just little kids that need to learn this, but also sometimes adults need to as well. Um, So along that, along that vein, I guess, um, what do you think is most misunderstood by educators uh, about how to teach early elementary students critical thinking skills? Like, have you ever run into educators who don't think it's possible to teach that at that early age? Or is there um, other things that they kind of get wrong? 
I definitely think there are educators who struggle with it. Mostly not people who are teaching young children. People who actually spend their days with young children can see and recognize all of the skills and abilities young kids bring with them. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is the assumption that kids need a lot of background knowledge to be able to engage in thinking and to be able to engage in conversations. That if they don't already have this foundation of knowledge about the idea, that they don't have enough to talk or to think about it. When in reality, young kids have from the very beginning been thinking about, and as soon as they could, talking about things that they have very little background knowledge on because they have to. That's how they gain that background knowledge. So if we wait until we front load everything for them before they really get to engage in it, if we only give things to them and don't give them a chance to really work with them, whether that's in conversations or whether that's in other kinds of activities, then we're actually holding them back because they're capable of taking what they have and building on it through their learning, through their conversations, through the questions that they ask, and they need not wait for us to make that happen for them. Interesting. So the background knowledge is not as important, but one of the things that you had said in your work is that our youngest learners have the ability to think critically, right, and to process these deep thoughts, but they often have trouble expressing themselves with conversation skills. So what does it look like to specifically teach those conversation skills in a classroom and why is that so important? Our youngest kids are still gaining those skills. They've picked up some through conversations with families, through conversations with kids they meet at the playground, through conversations at, you know, gymnastics class or church or wherever else they spend their time outside of school. But it's rare for our young kids to have had opportunities to really be explicit in their understanding of conversation skills. They're picking them up organically, so they may have some strengths and other areas where they are not as strong. And so it's important that we help them to really develop across the conversational spectrum. Some kids are really good at listening to others. They've had that modeled for them very well. Other kids come from families where people talk over each other, where there's a lot of, of just loud conversations happening and less clear, obvious listening, and they need more support to understand how do you truly listen to someone? How do you develop your thinking through what someone else is saying? How do you build on those ideas? So we do a lot of that through sentence starters, through offering kids ways to say, I agree with, or I disagree with. As simple as that says, I'm listening to you and I'm really thinking about your idea so that I can build onto it. And that's a really basic thing that preschoolers and kindergartners start to do really naturally as soon as it's been modeled for them. We also do a lot of work around noticing and naming with kids so that we build on those strengths. So if a kid really is good at listening, you might say, wow, I noticed that Elise was listening so carefully and I could tell because she was making eye contact and she was nodding her head. So helping the other kids see what's happening that's strong it tells that young kid, so it tells Elise, oh man, I was doing that. Like, I didn't even realize. I'm going to keep doing that. And then it tells Elise's classmates, oh, I saw her do that. I can do that too. It's a lot more powerful when they see it from their peers because it feels more natural to them when their peers are doing it than when we do it. It helps for us to do it, but it's also really important for them to be able to notice the things that their peers are doing that they could then take on trying. And you have... I believe you mentioned in the article, like a noticing and naming board that you use to help students do this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so the different kinds of skills we're working on. So often at the start of the year, that really is the listening piece. Um, you know, I can listen so that I understand what others are saying, what others are thinking. 
And we make put that on a big sentence strip and hang it up. And then as I notice kids doing things, I put it on a post-it note in the middle of a conversation. I noticed you were making eye contact. I noticed you said, I agree because, and showed that you were listening. I noticed that you asked a question that showed you were listening and that you did more information. So I write them on post-it notes and stick them all around that idea of, I can listen to help to understand other people's thinking. And then when we go on to other conversation skills, like I can add my own thinking onto others, then I might say, oh, I noticed you were adding on by saying, oh, I heard you say this and that made me think this. So in some ways, the sentence starters then end up being generated by the kids when they have strong ones that they naturally use. They don't need me to give them some if I can build off the ones they're already using. One of the things I noticed a few years back that was really exciting with our notice and and name board was that kids started wanting to add to it. So they would come out of a partner conversation or a small group conversation or sometimes even our whole class conversation and say, hey, I noticed Liam was doing this. Can I put that on our notice and name board? (laughs) Wow, you've internalized this enough to not only be doing it yourself, but to notice it or maybe not even doing it yet, but to notice that your peers are doing it. So I started handing them post-it notes and letting them add to the notice and name board as well. That's lovely. I love it. So one thing I wanted to ask about was the the shy kids, right, or the quiet kids in class um, who may not be as willing to jump in with all the questions and add to the conversations and stuff. So what strategies would you tell educators about how to engage all of the students in these kinds of conversations and therefore lead them to develop these critical thinking skills? One of the first things I always say is just to be patient because it is so easy for us as, as teachers to get caught up in this kid isn't ever talking and to do the kind of thing we've all seen in, in online classes where, you know, you have to contribute twice to every conversation um, and you end up, as we've seen in online classes as educators, some really repetitive ideas get thrown out there because people don't have something new to say. And we want to be sure that our conversations are meaningful. So first, just be patient. But there's other ways too. One is to, in a conversation, help those kids who talk a lot, who tend to dominate the conversation, which makes it harder for those shyer kids or those kids who are learning English or those kids who have some anxiety around speaking to get their voices in, to start to teach those kids how to hold back and to pause and to leave some quiet, but also sometimes to say, Matthew, I noticed you haven't shared anything. Would you like to share today? Do you have something you'd like to share? My third graders this year are so good at that. I am amazed at their ability to notice who hasn't spoken. I'm keeping a conversation map so I can see it on paper. And they're still usually faster than I am about inviting their peers in. And their peers need to know it's okay to say no if they don't have anything to share. But I would say about half the time when a kid says, do you have something you want to share? They're like, yeah, I do. Actually, I've kind of been waiting to get my voice in. Another way is to really work with smaller groups and partners to give those kids a chance where there's more likely to be some quiet and less likely to be so many eyes on them if they feel uncomfortable with it. So lots of partner conversations and small group conversations help those kids gain confidence at sharing their thinking. Cool. Thanks. That's helpful for me as the always shy and quiet kid. So in your EL article, you had mentioned a bunch, a couple of really good prompts and questions to get kids into a conversation that um, that would promote critical thinking. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for educators as to where to find these kinds of prompts or questions um, if they were looking to, to engage students more in this kind of critical thinking. Well, that is a great question. 
Um, interestingly enough, I feel like when you look online for great resources for doing some really wonderful critical thinking and talk about that thinking, the math teachers in across the internet have been really great at sharing ideas and coming up with some really neat strategies. As I say in the article, one of my favorites is the which one doesn't belong, where there's four images, and those could be four images of anything. So right now we're studying um, in our third grade classroom soil. So I might have three different pictures that have plants, some doing well, some not doing well, some, you know, growing tall, but looking kind of spindly, others growing full, others not growing tall, where kids could talk about which one doesn't belong. And any answer can be correct. That's the beauty of the which one doesn't belong is that it's not a one right answer thing, which is kind of funny, since really it came out of the math world. And we think of math as a one right answer thing. But the idea being as long as you can justify what makes that one different from the other three, then any answer is acceptable. And it's a really low floor kind of task because kids sometimes look at something and go, well, that one's a different color than the other three. Okay, well, that's not a very exciting way that it's different. But that kid had a way into the task to get started in the conversation and to put their thinking out there. But it also tends to be a very high ceiling task. Kids can take it to ways they come up with things when they look at these that never would have crossed my mind. Um, and it can be used again across all content areas. It started in math with lots of things with shapes and numbers, but I've used it in history. I've used it in science. I think there's a lot of kind of those big open-ended prompts out there, like which one doesn't belong, like would you rather... The important piece, I think, is the idea that it's really open-ended. As soon as you have a right answer to the question, the conversation kind of ends. You find that right answer and it's done. So it has to be something more open for kids to be able to build on each other's ideas and to really kind of struggle through their thinking and, and maybe change their minds because someone has suggested something that hadn't even occurred to them. Thank you. We'll go to the math teachers. <laughs> well, thank you, Jennifer, for it spending this time with me and having this conversation. Um, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to the ASCD Connect podcast. We appreciate your support and interest in all that you do for students. And to read more of Jennifer Orr's work, go to www.ascd.org slash people slash Jennifer dash Orr. Thank you so much. Have a good one.